0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the John F. Kennedy, Jr. Forum. I'm Trey Grayson, the director of the Institute of Politics. Full disclosure, I am a Republican. Uh, And we're really excited to have everybody here. This is our first official forum of the so-called spring semester uh, here at Harvard. Uh, We're really excited to have all of you here. This is a great crowd. We've got a great panel. Uh, All of you, I think, got a chance to get a program so that you have more detailed bios. I'm not really going to do really long introductions for our panel. Uh, panelists, we're just going to dive right in. I'll do a quick intro. I'm going to ask one question to kick it all off, and uh, we'll dive in, bring you guys into the conversation, and we'll go from there. So, um, to each of you, if you could just address: In the last election, um, our party didn't do very well. You know, there were some hi- there were some some wins, um, some highlights, some things like that. But in general, the president was reelected, uh, the Republican Party lost seats in both the House and the Senate. Uh, what? And, we, and over the last couple of months, a lot of Republicans have been asking questions about, you know, how can we do better? How can we win elections in the future? How can we get good policies passed? That sort of thing. What kind of advice would you give if you could wave a wand uh, to uh, to make the next election and the future elections work out better for the party? We'll just kind of go down the line, and then we'll we'll take it from there. So, to my immediate left, who's going to answer the first is Ron Christie. Uh, Ron. Uh, was an IOP fellow about a year and a half ago. He claims it was the best fellows class Um, They're all the best fellows classes, Ron. Okay, Uh, Ron worked for President Bush Uh, Actually got to start working for then representative John Kasich and is now a consultant in Washington and New York City with Christie strategies So Ron,
1: why don't you start us and we'll work our way down. Thank you Trey and good evening everybody It's uh, it's an honor and a a privilege to come back here and to see so many of the uh, friendly faces who were here uh, during my time as a fellow, so thank you all for coming and, and to hear about the future of the Republican Party. Um, I actually had an interesting experience this morning, Trey, to answer your question. I was taking the shuttle flight from uh, Washington, D.C. up uh, to Boston on the, uh, this morning, and two of the flight attendants said, uh, would you just hang back for a minute while we let the rest of the folks off the plane? I said, well, that's unusual. I said, sure, and so they waited, everybody was off the plane, and they said, you're a Republican, so are we. (laughs) And they said, and so is the captain. (laughs) And I said, so you waited for- That was rare. Right. And I said, so you waited for everybody else to get off the plane, why? And they said, did you read the article in the Boston Herald this morning about the future of the party? And I said, I hadn't, so of course they gave it to me. And they said, the Republican Party has made an error. They didn't reach out to as many young people on college campuses. They didn't reach out to as many people of color. And they were seen as being hostile and angry. So if you guys in Washington look angry, don't reach out to young people, and don't utilize technology, you're gonna be in the minority. And I think that uh, counsel, given this morning Trey, was right.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, Carrie Healy was
0: the lieutenant governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts from 2003 to 2007. Uh, she was also an IOP fellow. Your class was probably the best. I think
2: it was the best. Best yes, class of exactly. yeah, yeah, yes. IOP fellows. Yeah.
0: Um, and was a senior advisor to uh, Governor Mitt Romney during his presidential campaign.
2: Thank you, much. Glad to have much. you back. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, people always whisper about being Republicans in Massachusetts, just so you know. Like, no one will actually, they'll always tell you, like, confidentially, you know, just, just so you know, you know. So, um, I, I have recently uh, written an article after going to the RNC meeting. I'm currently the National Committee woman uh, from Massachusetts, which means I'm one of three people who get to represent Massachusetts on the uh, RNC. And as you can imagine, it was a pretty interesting meeting uh, this year. I wanted to go there and see how much of that criticism of those concerns had really sunk in uh, to the party core. You know, and I'm not saying that what the RNC does completely impacts the party, but it certainly is a good measure of what our core activists are thinking and feeling if they feel like they have to do something different. And I saw there was a genuine attempt to start thinking through okay, who amongst us has been doing things right? And so they were bringing in all the people who had been doing outreach to. African-Americans to Hispanics to women to young people to Asian-Americans and they were listening to them for the first time and you could tell how surprised honestly some of them were to be up there in front of the RNC getting having the opportunity to talk about the work that many of them were deeply passionate about but they had been sort of laboring away on in complete obscurity for years and and they were being brought to the center so that gave me some encouragement and that is the first part of what needs to be done i'd say the second part of what needs to be done is those folks need to get funded mm-hmm. you know if those are good ideas they've been piloted now for many many years let's let's push them out let's <clears throat> give them more funding and i think reint's Priebus is absolutely ready to do that um, so that was the optimistic piece what i was less optimistic about is that the other part of what needs to be done is that we need to come together not under a big tent because I don't think anyone is going to give up their identity, but as a coalition of conservatives and we have very different conservative camps right now which add up to just about half the country, but we don't vote that way. And so we need to bring together right now, as a party, bring together the libertarian-leaning uh, conservatives from the Ron Paul movement, all those energetic young people who totally mastered social media and all of the technology that we really need to get better at. We need to bring together the moderate Republicans in the Northeast that are about to give up the ghost. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know the, the moderate Republicans have been very discouraged because there's been a glass ceiling in our party for years and years above which they could not rise and eventually that that makes people die out. But if we were to be able to harness these three groups as a coalition of conservatives with a core of beliefs around social, not social policy, but economic policy, foreign policy, states' rights, I believe that that could be a winning strategy to bring us back uh, to a competitive point. Mm -hmm. Thanks,
0: Thanks, Kerry. uh, next is Karen Hughes. Karen was a counselor to President George W. Bush uh, and is a member of the current IOP Fellowship class. She and John Murray, who will speak next, after her think their class is the best. I was going to say, I have class. to speak yes. for the
3: spring 2013 yeah. fellows. We're going to show all the rest of them up. So, yeah. so, <laughs> yes.
0: so Karen, what advice would, uh, would you give? Your, your old boss was, uh, you know, was the last Republican elected president. Well, and I actually worked
3: closely with President Bush um, to define his domestic policy as compassionate conservatism. And I think that's where we lost our way. Because where I got that from was he was being interviewed by a reporter once. And the reporter said to him, um, you know, how do you describe your philosophy and he said well I'm a conservative and the reporters actually said you don't sound like a conservative when you talk about immigration when you talk about education when you talk about young single moms when you talk about Hispanics you don't sound like a conservative and the president said call me a conservative with a heart and I turned that into compassionate conservatism and what that said was that a conservative philosophy could be optimistic and hopeful and I think that's where we've lost our way We don't sound optimistic and hopeful. We need to be, once again, the party that that provides a ladder to opportunity. Mm -hmm. And one of the unfortunate things about the infamous 47% uh, comment is it sounds like we thought there's 47% of the people that basically were writing off and would never be with us and and aren't part of our coalition, and that simply isn't true. I mean, look at us on this stage. I mean, we've got young people, we've got women, we've got an African-American, we've got, I mean, look at us, I mean, we're Republicans. And I don't think we showed that side of republicanism. I also don't think that we talked about our policies. We're never going to become the party of big government. We're always going to be for limited government. That doesn't mean we're against all government. And so I think the way we talk, we we believe there is a role for a properly limited government. We don't want it to be too big because that crowds out personal responsibility, individual opportunity, the private sector initiative. And we don't talk about our policies, I don't think, in ways that have been resonating with people in their daily lives. When I started my career, I was a television reporter, and I had a producer who every time I would give a story, he'd say, what does this mean for the average you know, teacher? Or what does this mean for the average you know, parent with a child in schools? And we're not talking about our policies with that filter of what does this mean in people's lives. And I, you know, So f- from my expertise as communications, and from a message perspective, I think we were just, our tone was, was wrong. Um, in, in recent years. I agree on that, we, and we did not do effective outreach, and we need to get a lot better at organizing. I was the executive director of the Republican Party of Texas at a time when we only had two statewide elected Republicans, and, and we managed to take all 17 state offices over a period of years in the 1990s, and we still have them today. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we did it by recruiting great candidates, we did it by organizing and out-organizing the Democrats, and we did it by articulating our conservative philosophy to Texans in a way that resonated in their lives, and that's what I think we need to do nationally. I will say, though, with, with all the bad news, we do have 30 Republican governors mm-hmm. who are governing very effectively in states across this country, and we need to look at what they're doing successfully in their states as a good model for us nationally. <clears throat> Great. Thanks, Karen.
0: Uh, next up is John Murray. John is also a member of the so-called best fellows class ever. 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 <laughs> ever. Best um, ever. John is the president of the YG Action Network, YG Action Fund, which is a 501 uh, c super PAC organization to elect um, House Republican or candidates. Uh, it was also uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for Eric Cantor, who gave an interesting speech yesterday that I think addressed some of what Karen was talking about. Uh,
4: John, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I want to build on what Karen said. Um, I joined um, Eric's team in 2009, um, which uh, I remember seeing Time Magazine about the day that I had accepted the job, and I, it said something like the end of the Republican Party, and I was like, well, this is a great time for me to get on board this train. Um, but you know, honestly, at the time, I remember there were 176 members of the House, and we had a 70% um, approval rating, new president, a very exciting time in the country, And I remember meeting um, with the leadership team, at the time, um, Minority Leader Boehner, and Whip Cantor, um, and others, and one of the things we decided at that moment was we could not be a party of simply disagreeing with the President, of simply saying, whatever they want to do, the answer is no. We made a very um, focused decision to fight over the battle of ideas by offering alternatives. And I remember very um, clearly uh, the first trip we took to the White House to sit down with the president to talk about the stimulus package. And Eric was sort of new to you know, taking some of these trips. Um, and I remember he said, well, we should bring our alternative. And um, we said, well, sure, why not? I mean, he's got a plan, we should have a plan. And we came to the White House and we sat down and Eric said, would everyone like to see my plan? And the president, and I remember the look on um, his chief of staff at the time, Ron Emanuel's face, he was like, don't do it. And, <laughs> and the president was like, sure, hand it out. <laughs> and so, but, but the, the point is, is it, it, it gave us a, a moment and an opportunity to be for something instead of just against something. And my biggest concern right now, and and I left uh, Eric's office um, in the fall of 2011, uh, was we've we've sort of gotten away from articulating a vision that is not just a counter-proposal, but an offering a different choice. And I think this country understands, and if you look at the polling, everyone's aware that choices need to be made. The question is, is, what is the option that we're presenting, and how does that dovetail into the larger purpose of the average American family? And and I agree with Karen. That's the other um, challenge I think we face, is we've gotten away from articulating the value proposition at the kitchen table. We've gotten into a pitch battle over spending, um, and I personally believe we do need to address uh, the debt and the debt, and I think all of us, Um, Play a role in thinking about how this country is going to move forward under the current conditions that it that it is in But if we are not articulating why it matters to you not just at the principle of cut the government or cut spending But how is it going to impact you in a real way? Then we're going to lose that argument and um, For Eric uh, I, I ran his comm shop as well And that's a lot of how we spend our time is how are you connecting? and where are you connecting? And I think that in order for us to have an effective future electoral, you know, positive electoral outlook, we're gonna have to get back to connecting because I think we have policies and ideas, but if we're only debate-societing them inside the dome amongst each other, we're not really reaching out and we're not gonna be successful. Tonight's final
0: uh, panelist is Anna Navarro. Anna, you may have seen on CNN, where she's been a contributor uh, and has been appearing more and more frequently. She was a top advisor to Senator John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, as well as Governor John Huntsman's 2012 presidential campaign. We're really glad to have, she's not yet a member of the best fellows class ever, but we're hoping to sell her on the IOP so y'all be nice to her, so maybe she can
5: spend some more time with us in the future. Well, I'm from Miami, so what I do know is that if I do come and be a fellow, it's not gonna be in the winter. (laughs) Well, the good part about being last is that I get to say all of the above. What did we do wrong? What's the advice? All of the above. We had bad outreach. We had bad message. We had bad tone. We had bad messengers. Uh, I think you take the 2012 campaign and make it a manual on what not to do. Karen is completely right. Somewhere in the process, we have lost the heart of the conservatives. Somewhere in the process, conservatives have become and sound to others as righteous, judgmental people. We somehow you know, made gays believe we wanted to neuter them. We made Hispanics believe we wanted them to deport themselves. We made young girls in college think we were going to make it really hard for them to have sex. Well, guess what? That's not really a very good way to get anybody <laughs> but old white men no. to vote for you. <laughs> so, on the, on, on the Hispanic part, really, we, uh, it, it could not have been worse. I've said before, I think uh, Mitt Romney lost this election in the primary. He self-deported from the White House. And I think our primary process was incredibly destructive on the Senate side, in the presidential race, really forcing um, candidates to go unnecessarily so far to the right. And then... I think in in, in Romney's case, he had an acute case of flip-flop paranoia that didn't allow him to shift to the center during the general, and so we had the primary candidate practically the entire time. Now, I think there's a silver lining to this. We have uh, now learned uh, that it is unavoidable to have a wake-up call, that we can rack up all the white older male vote we want but that that's not enough and that if we don't want to be in political oblivion we have to do better with women, with Hispanics, with African-Americans, with everybody. That we can't just be a niche party and we are seeing a lot of introspection all over the place in the party. Uh, I I just came from the um, Republican House retreat last month and the same thing that Kerry was just describing is what I observed. in the the House retreat. And I was impressed by um, how many of them are interested in party building, about how many of them care about doing better. I was expecting to go into a den of uh, crazy fringe uh, people and to my surprise there's more rational, uh, really nice (coughs) Republicans who are decent public servants than meets the eye. It's just that oftentimes (laughs) the media likes to portray put the wackos on TV because they make good TV. Um, so I think there is everywhere in the Republican Party, the RNC, the governors, the House Republicans, the Senate, we are seeing that this introspection is leading to things, for example, like John Boehner and Mitch McConnell agreeing to have Senator Marco Rubio give the response to the State of the Union. It's going to be the first time a Hispanic does that and he's doing it in English and Spanish. That sends a tremendous message, and it's just one of the things that I think is gonna come out of this process, which was a terrible process.
0: Thanks to all of you for those opening comments. Just a reminder for those who are um, following or or following us on Twitter, uh, it's GOPFuture, hashtag, hashtag GOPFuture is the hashtag we're using for this. Um, We've talked a lot about, and I think you all have done a pretty good job of addressing what I would describe as the marketing challenges Mm Of the party, I want to explore maybe another possible way to react uh, to what happened and reposition for the future. are there certain policies that the party or lots members of the party we might need to the party may need to shift on a couple of actual policy issues, not just selling the party better but actually changing and a couple two that I had in mind were um, immigration, which seems to be happening and um, gay rights, which is another one. I wanted to see if any of you wanted to weigh in on. On the concept or those two issues in particular, maybe there's some others. Uh, to, to you know, to say,
5: I, don't, yeah. I, don't think, I don't think Republicans need to shift. What I think Republicans need to do is accept diversity of thought. Not every Republican is anti gay. I believe in homosexual rights. And nobody should tell me that because of that I am less conservative or I am a rhino. I think we need to become less judgmental and less righteous amongst ourselves. We can't have labels and we can't have a litmus test on what a conservative makes. You know when you're a Republican, you know when you're a conservative, you know when you stand for freedoms, even if it means sexual freedoms and the freedoms of people to love each other even if they're of the same gender. So it's okay to be a pro-choice fiscal conservative. It's okay to be a pro-gay rights, Foreign policy conservative. We need to become a party of diversity of thought where that is welcome and embraced and where we're not just speaking to a narrow, you know, fringe of, uh, of America.
0: And Carrie. Okay, yeah.
2: And this was the, the conservative uh, coalition that, that I was proposing. I think that if you have that coalition, it automatically introduces that acceptance of diversity of thought. You're going to have libertarians who don't care about those social issues, who, who want the individual to be free to express themselves either sexually or, or in, in many other ways. Um, so that's going to be attractive to a lot of people within the party. And we're not asking any social conservative to change their mind on perhaps religious values that they hold very dearly uh, around uh, marriage. But what we are saying is give equal status and respect and opportunity within the party both to libertarian leaning uh, Republicans and also moderate Republicans like myself Mm. and others in the Northeast who who are very open to, uh, to a broader membership and participation within the Republican party.
0: Karen, I see you nodding along, and you want to Well, I was going to say, part
2: of it is, again, language does matter. Mm-hmm. It's an
3: important part of it. So, for example, um, Governor Bush, President Bush, was pro-life. I'm pro-life. But he didn't talk about it in a way that said, if you are pro-choice, you have to leave, or you're not Republican enough, or you're not welcome in my, co- in my coalition or to support me. What he said was, um, and what I've always said is, I'm pro-life. I have many friends who are pro-choice. Surely we can all agree that we got to work together on policies like promoting adoption. There, there are ways to reduce abortion, and people on both sides of the issue agree with that. Let's find some common ground. I think the same thing is true on, on immigration <laughs> reform. A, a lot of it is the way we talk about the issue. Um, President Bush understood it in very human terms. Mm-hmm. It, it was not just a policy issue. It was also a human issue. It was an issue of, of, of rights for people who are preyed upon often, who are brought across the border and, and die, unfortunately, by, when they're brought over in, those, in trucks. And you know, Every couple years we have a horrible situation in Texas where some of these poor people are, are brought across the border. He also, he understood, he used to say in Texas, we have tios and tias, aunts and uncles on both sides of the Rio Grande. Um, their family ties in Texas and, and he understood, he, he started his career in the West Texas oil fields where a lot of the workers were illegal immigrants and he saw how hard they worked and he saw that they came here out of desperation to try to feed their families and he understood that on a very human level and when you understand that it makes you talk about it very differently. Now from the other side of the coin there are also people in Texas and in many border states that have seen the human problems from a different perspective. They've seen the crowding in the hospitals, in the schools. They've, they've felt almost that parts of their country are, are be, don't feel like America even, be, you know, because um, people are coming and not learning to speak English and not really assimilating. And that's threatening to them. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an emotional human issue. And I think we have to recognize that on policy terms. And, and in terms of changing policy, I do think the one area that where Republicans are going to have to understand is that we have to make some accommodation for the 11 million people who are here. And I, I, I don't believe that we should, I think as a matter of fairness, we, we shouldn't let them cut in line. We shouldn't let people who came here illegally jump in front of people who came here and followed the rules. But I do think we have to offer some sort of path um, to to citizenship for that 11 million people and and there are some in my party who don't agree with that and I think we're going to those of us who, who believe that and see the impact of that particularly people who've been here 20 years and, and reared their families here and and consider themselves very much a part of America we, we have to make some sort of policy accommodation I think to that will allow those people to perhaps pay a fine to, to do something to make things right and fair but allow them a path to citizenship.
4: John. A little different angle to it. As a super PAC guy, um, the other thing I spend my time looking at are candidates and winning. And we invested a lot of money in candidates who can't win. And I um, think that we need to begin to think about, not just from an issue perspective, but if you're going to engage in a house race in the state of Massachusetts, then you better have a candidate that fits his district. And what I keep seeing us do is trying to retro people based on a sort of litmus test set of rules into districts that they cannot win. And, you know, I'm accountable to the people who give us money and I cannot go to them after a cycle and say, well, I blew the budget on this guy who clearly had no chance of winning in this district. Um, So for me, there's a political piece to this, which is political, power provides you the avenue to make policy change and the part that I don't get about some parts of our party are they would rather be in a position to not impact policy but have a litmus test reason to either run or not run and and I, I, I just don't understand that I mean we invest in the effort to get people elected who are going to come and be representative of the places that they're coming from so the person in Massachusetts isn't going to look like the person in uh, North Carolina, but that's how it's supposed to be. And um, as we move forward, I can tell you for our super PAC and YG uh, stands for Young Guns and Young Guns is a program that started uh, by Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy and Eric Cantor specifically because, uh, and this was at the uh, the campaign committee for the house in Washington, specifically because we did not have a way to vet candidates in a meaningful way uh, based on district. It was sort of like well I guess it's your turn so we'd put that candidate up maybe they'd win maybe they wouldn't. The point is is that we have systematically begun to look at, at and this is at the house level people who are capable of competing in their district and that fit the makeup of the district. And yes, there are some very red districts that are gonna have people who are gonna think very differently from people in purple districts and maybe even some little more blue districts that we can compete in. But the point is, if we do not try to compete, if we do not reach out to millennials and Gen Xers, if we do not think about the issues as they resonate in a particular area, we will be a minority regional party that is only in the places where we have gerrymandered red districts. And that is, you cannot win a Senate race that way and you cannot win a presidential that One way. One of the,
3: bigger pro- the biggest problems I think writ large for the dysfunction that we're seeing in, in the political process right now is the whole nature of districts. Mm-hmm. So everybody in Washington is scared to death of, of being primaried, There's a, that's the new political term, that you're gonna be primaried. Well, that means you're going to, if you're a Republican, Someone's going to run at you from the right if you don't go far enough to the right. If you're a Democrat, someone's going to run at you from the left. There aren't very many districts. Charlie can tell us, he's the expert. How many districts are really swing districts?
2: We've
3: got 25 right now. So 25.
0: Charlie Cook, Cook Political Report, IOP fellow, he said (laughs) 25. (laughs)
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: 25 swing. He didn't have a 25. Mic. Yeah,
3: where well, well, there's a contest, so the contest is in the Republican primary and the Democratic primary, and that pushes both parties to the further extremes. And frankly, there's not a super PAC for moderates. I mean, who's who's out there saying mm-hmm. let's have a super PAC for people who are who want to compromise in Washington or it's people who right. want to get <laughs> along in Washington or people who are people who, you know, who are willing to work together to find common ground, and that's a
1: problem. Well, let me take a different uh, tack on this, Trey, because I think, you know, we've talked about the social issues and we talked about immigration. Republicans should have cleaned the clock of the President in this race based on who we are as Republicans. Republicans are for limited government, they are for a pro-tax cut, pro-growth rate, and for a strong defense. And if you look at what's gone on over the last four years of the percentage of spending to GDP where the post-World War II average is say 18 to 19 percent, we're spending about 24 percent. We're spending far far too much money. The entitlements are going to bury all of you and all of us if we don't reform entitlements. The President put together a commission specifically to look at entitlement reform. How do we get our hands around Social Security? How do we deal with Medicare and Medicaid? And at the same time, Once this report came out, the President ignored it, and the Republicans let him get away with it. You could go on issue after issue where Republicans, I think, are now afraid of this President with facts. And I I was at a meeting this morning with about 40 members of Congress, it was off the record, and some of the Republican folks said, well, you know, the, the President really cleaned our clock on this, how can we combat him? Can you help us with some good talking points? And I thought, this is not about talking points. This is about having a fundamental understanding of the way that our government works, the way that it's supposed to work, and the way that it is not working. And so long as Republicans feel that they can't play on the same level to compete from a communication standpoint or from a a, a policy standpoint, we're going to lose. We need to not only recruit folks from these these swing districts who can run and win, but you've got to know, what does the Congressional Budget Act of 1974 say? Well, it says the President of the United States has to have a budget that is due to the Congress by the first Monday in February. This President has missed that deadline 80% of the time. Four of the last five budgets have been late. What are the consequences of that? The consequences of this are, as John knows when he was up on the Hill, and I dealt with this when I worked for the House Budget Committee Chairman John Kasich, budget resolutions matter. That's why we have the sequester. That's why we continue to have these continuing resolutions where the government doesn't actually explain to the American people This is why we're spending this amount of money. These are our priorities. Here's where we hope to get to. And instead, it's the gotcha game of the media cycle uh, that Anna and I are always sort of duking it out with folks on on television. And if you're only talking about defense, you lose. You've got to be on the offense. And I think Republicans, from a policy and a communication standpoint, are on the defense. And you lose if you're defensive, as opposed to being on the offense.
0: I've got a lot of questions I'd like to ask them, but I want to bring you all into the discussion. Hopefully, you'll ask the questions I was going to ask. Uh, So we're going to begin the question and answer period with the audience. As is our custom here at the John F. Kennedy, Jr. Forum, we have our four microphones uh, throughout the forum area here, two in the floor, uh, two in the stairwells in those boxes. Um, The rules are simple. Uh, When you begin the question, begin by identifying yourself and telling what affiliation you have. Uh, All questions end in a question mark and they do not contain a speech in the middle. They are questions. Uh, And we can take as many as we can. And we'll just start up here in the box since we don't have anybody uh, on the floor yet. Uh, We'll start here with Danny.
6: Hi, I'm Danny Hatsum. I'm a second year MPP here at
0: the
1: Kennedy School. And uh, my question is, uh, we'll start with Dr. Healy, and we can So uh, Harvard's own Ross Doffett wrote a column immediately after the election when he said that millennials and uh, uh, Hispanics and immigration and gay rights were baubles and distractions, that this was about economic issues, this is why we lost. And since the uh, apparent benefit of the Romney-Ryan ticket was that it would be the face of Republican economic ideas, and they lost badly, is that not uh, indicative of Americans' rejection of supply-side economics and uh, other conservative economic ideas?
2: I guess I, agree with, I disagree with both of those, um, both, you, both the question and also the underlying assertion that those concerns were just baubles or distractions. I think that young people feel very deeply uh, about uh, having a more open society. I think they not only care about things like gay marriage uh, and access to contraception and, and abortion issues, but they also care very deeply about the environment, for example, and we haven't addressed that properly as a party. I think there's a whole range of issues in addition uh, to, the, uh, to the economy, which I of course felt was the central issue that everyone should have been focused on like a laser beam during this last election, but clearly that they were not. Um, but I think that there were any number of issues that we as a party, we missed out on. You know, we could, we could broaden our appeal without changing our positions on this thing or that thing that's particularly controversial, if, for example, we had had a more fully articulated policy on Central and South America. you know, If we had talked more about uh, what free trade would really mean with our allies and, and actually reach out and let people understand what that would, would mean for various uh, groups within our our own uh, voting group, uh, Hispanics and others, uh, if we had said we really care about Central and South America and we're gonna make an effort to make sure that our economies are integrated, that's an economic message that I think actually would have brought people to the Republican side and would have mattered. And going back to the environment, I genuinely think we have a huge missed opportunity. You know, Republicans, were are the party that started thinking about the environment and engaging the Republican, or, the, or the, uh, the, the nation in preserving our environment. And the fact that we don't even talk about it now is a huge error on our part and we need to, uh, we need to make up some time on that.
5: Well, I, I think Republicans need to, uh, you know, we need to walk and chew gum at the same time. We can't just talk about one issue. Yes, the economy was the biggest issue, but, you know, I want somebody that talks to my head and my wallet, but that also talks to my heart and my emotions. It's a lot easier to listen to what somebody's saying about your wallet and about the economy if you like them, if you think they can relate to you, if you think they are speaking to everyday Americans and they feel your pain something that Bill Clinton was very good at, something that George W. Bush was good at. And so, yes, the economy was the focus, yes, the economy was the biggest issue, but we weren't getting through because we weren't relating. We need to do both.
3: I think a couple of things on the economy. One is we had what I call a context hangover. So there was nobody out defending George W. Bush. He, He left office right after the financial crisis, Nobody ever made the case that that was not a failure of George Bush's economic policies. It was a housing problem exactly. at its core. And nobody made that case because there was no vice president from the Bush administration running for president. Or there was nobody out there defending him. People just almost didn't want to say his name because of popularity of the war and things like that. So nobody was ever out there making that case on the economic policy. So there was a context hangover. Frankly, I think people... People voted for President Obama despite the economy. <laughs> the economy's in bad shape. Um, you know, we're barely, we, we actually retracted in the last quarter of last yep. year. People, people think the country's on the wrong track. People didn't like, I don't think, the stimulus and didn't think it worked. They, they voted for him, I think, as Anna said, you know, b- finally because they decided they were more comfortable with him than they were with the alternative. I don't think it was really, it was about the economy in the sense that people were very worried about the economy, but I don't think it was a, a referendum on Republican yeah. economic principles.
0: Next question.
7: Hi. Um, yeah, you can move it down. It's okay. Yeah, way down. Um, I uh, am a registered, unenrolled voter. I think that's and what's my. Your name uh, speaking with you? Uh, my name is Sonia Babalia. Um, I, no, I have no party affiliation, so I'm just here to listen. Um, Ms. Hughes, I really enjoyed your Politico um, op-ed soon after the election, especially your. <laughs> Threat to cut out some tongues here and there. <laughs> that, um, that, got, that comment got more attention than anything I've said in the last four so, yeah, years. But so for I, me, yeah. it, was, it was a very powerful comment because. But can I interrupt for a second? Just for those
0: who have, didn't read it or hear about it, what was it you said?
7: Well, or- I actually said that I was going to cut out the
3: tongue of any Republican man who ever said anything else about rape ever again, other than it's a horrific, violent crime. Okay. <laughs> yes. And that was, and it was actually born out of my
6: frustration.
3: <laughs> <laughs> It was born of my frustration because I was the executive director of the Texas Republican Party in 1990 when we had a Republican running for, for governor who made this horrible, ju- he, he said it was a joke um, about rape. And um, he, it really, it cost him the election. And I, I, when, I, when I heard about the comments no. last year, I thought, haven't we learned anything in 20 years? No. You know, and, and, no. and so all the young people like you who are my son's age, my son's 25 now, all the the young women that I know, they
7: all think we're a bunch of Neanderthals because yep. of comments all right, let me, let's like Let's get back those. to our question. So, I'm anyway, sorry. I just sorry. wanted to no, everybody to um, <laughs> yeah. So my question is, you also mentioned that a lot of your daughter's friends ended up voting for Obama because of those comments, and it kind of went back to um, like Claire McCaskill's election bid. Um, I kind of noticed that there were no Republican women speaking out about it. Um, like people were saying, oh, that's like a bizarre comment for him to make that's a, you know, not so great thing to say in public, but I didn't see many Republican women stand up and say that is absolutely wrong for him to have said that, and I was just wondering if you have any idea why. That's an interesting
3: point. I don't think we saw very many Republican women's faces in the last campaign, no. frankly, and that's too bad. I mean, yeah. I, not enough at any rate. And, and i don't really know why um i spoke out at the time but i was i was in texas so probably didn't get as much and it wasn't quite as harshly as i did after the election <laughs> cuz again you don't you know you don't want I, I was not in, you know, I was supporting Governor Romney, but I wasn't part of his campaign. And so you don't want to say something that'll mm-hmm. upset yeah. the camp, you know, that'll cause problems. Well, again, these for the comments campaign. were really
0: not by Romney. Romney, they were like by. No, yeah. Yeah. and he, and yeah.
3: he, he yeah. did speak yeah. out against
2: comments. them. No, and he, and right. he spoke yes. out against them. And he spoke out, he out against them. He spoke out very strongly against them immediately yeah. right. and clearly. So. Right. Yeah.
3: But, but you're right, we didn't see a lot of Republican women say, say many things, and I, I don't know why that, that is. Well,
1: l- l- let me take that not from a Republican woman, but from a Republican guy standpoint. I mean, you know, I go on MSNBC every week, and they try to throw everything, including the kitchen sink, at you, and try to cut you off. I, I was on talking about this very subject, and Chris Matthews said to me on Harbaugh, I guess, well, you know, you Republicans, you're just a bunch of troglodytes. And I said, Chris, that's a big word for you, but, <laughs> again. The, the, yes, thank Good you. Line. But the fact of the matter is that it's so easy for the media and for Democrats to paint the Republicans with one brush, but if a Democrat, oh say Bob uh, Menendez from New Jersey, is under allegations of of supposedly going to a different country and supposedly engaging in underage prostitution, you don't hear about that. And so I think that when we assess the way that Republicans react to issues, Governor Romney immediately came out and repeated those comments. The party elders, many of them came out and repudiated that, so you can't think that two or three people are speaking for an entire party for Republicans, but Democrats aren't put to the same standard. I don't, I don't think we came
5: out hard enough. Uh, and you know, I remember he was on, uh, Governor Romney was in an ad for one of those candidates. I also remember when Rush Limbaugh made his comments uh, about you know, Sandra Fluke that you know, we could have been stronger. We could have left absolutely no doubt that we repudiated, we condemned, we found them disgusting, this is not what we stood for. Instead of trying to massage the thing, say, you know, it's not the language I would have used. You've got to go further. People, when you hear something that's that offensive, people want a strong defense. And I think it's one of the lessons we learned, that we must strongly stand up against crazy comments that are not representative of the party. That when somebody in Sioux City, Iowa, says something that is offensive to Hispanics, my gosh, the rest of us have got to stand up and say, this is not representative. It's wrong. It's crazy. And you know what, Hispanics, this is not what we stand for. And we have to say it loud. We have to say it fearlessly. We have to say it strong. And we have to say it every.
2: Uh, being taped, yeah. I want to make it clear that Governor Romney made that uh, commercial in- endorsing Aiken before the comments, and, right. and he condemned the comments roundly. So. Well, we, did,
3: we tried to get him out of the race too. Yes, I mean, the, yeah. the party did well, yes, ask him absolutely. to get out of the race and the tried to replace him with did, another yeah. candidate. So, hey. so I think there were some, there were some, you know, there were strong comments made. I I do think it's an interesting point that I, do, I don't remember seeing a lot of Republican women speaking out, and that's mm-hmm. that's an interesting point.
6: Hi, my name is Aram Shah. I am an American Muslim Republican from Chicago at the Kennedy School. So I'm a near extinct He's near really extinct lonely. Species. Be nice to him. <laughs> Lots of divorce <diversity>. in <laughs> I had to gather a lot of courage to even stand over here amongst my friends. Uh, my question to you is, I've heard a lot about being, the Republican Party wants to be more in- inclusive, and I've heard that multiple times. I- I'd like to better understand, uh, other than just being an abstract concept, what specific steps, what specific action strategy does that mean uh, in order to accomplish that? And could that potentially mean not just speaking against or, or about these, some of these fringe elements, as Anna mentioned, uh, but how about expunging them from the party at the risk of reducing the base? How
1: about Ron? You know, for me, I I think that one of the things that upsets me so much in our political discourse today uh, when people talk about Republicans and, you know, how we need to reach out to this and that is that it sounds like we're a party of hyphens, right? Oh, African-Americans, you know, Hispanic-Americans, this-Americans. We're Americans. Why is it that Republicans are differentiating people based on their color? I don't like that. I think that if you have the right policies, if you have the right agenda, it's going to appeal to people of color, appeal to women, based on your ideology. And I I don't like the self-segregation. The other thing, and, and, and Karen and I both know this well, that I think that President Bush was so very effective about, was that he laid out his principles of this is who I am as a leader, this is where I think we should be going. And then he brought all folks together, Republicans, Democrats, Liberals, conservatives, and said, how can we best govern the country? And so, I think that if we try to move forward and say, this is the Republican, our way or the highway, I think we will forever lose that, and that we also recognize that, that as our former boss said, that one thing that we need to confront, and I believe that the, the civil rights issue of the 21st century is the power of an education. And if we can't combat that soft bigotry of low expectations that people of color can't compete equally because they're poor, because they're black, because they look this way, then we've already lost. Let's make sure that all of our kids can compete, regardless of the color of their skin or their gender, and make sure that all of our kids have that equal opportunity.
3: And I was just going to say, we hadn't mentioned the, 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 the issue that I think is most important for the future of the Republican Party until just then, and that's education. Um, because we have to be the party of uh, that provides that yep. ladder of opportunity, and the first rung of that ladder is education. And it's you know Americans are really concerned about their public schools. I saw a recent survey that said I think the concern is higher than it's ever been about the, the status of our public schools. We've got to be the party that's committed to fairness and that's providing right. that that step up on that ladder of opportunity to every child, no matter where they live in this country. That's and uh, President Bush did always talk about reading as the new civil right, and it's it's, true. it's vitally important to, to helping people, you know, achieve the American dream. And and, and here at this you know great university, um, you're all here because you succeeded, and you had people and teachers that invested in you, and that parents that encouraged you. And you need to make sure that all our kids in this country have that opportunity. In fact, I was once asked by, I was asked by Texas Monthly Magazine a, a few years ago, to, if I could do one thing to change the future of Texas, what would it be? Hmm. And I really thought long and hard about it, and I asked a lot of people about it, and I finally decided that I, it would be to have every third grader read at grade, at grade level, because that's a huge indicator of whether you're going to drop out, whether you're going to be able to succeed, whether you're able to go on to college. Imagine if we had every third grader in the mm-hmm. country able to read at third grade level when they were in third grade. It would make an enormous difference um, and and would open that path to opportunity to to a lot of kids who who aren't finding that opportunity now.
5: I actually disagree with you and I I think micro-targeting is very important and I think it's something that Democrats have done tremendously successfully. You don't go and say different things to different people, but certainly there's a fine line between speaking about some specifics that certain groups are interested in and pandering. And it's very important, I think, to do the first. If you're coming down to Miami, we want to hear about your policy towards Cuba, your policy towards Latin America. We want to hear that you understand foreign uh, trade, that you understand. If you, go to the, if you go to Texas, it's a completely different set of, you know, of, of priorities. If you go to Arizona, people want to know that you're understanding the border issues, so I do think micro-targeting to women, micro-targeting to Hispanics, micro-targeting to other groups has a, a great deal of effect and beneficial, and we, learn, we need to learn how to do it so that it doesn't sound like pandering. Uh, President Bush used to, with no qualms or shame, butcher the Spanish language every time he was <laughs> in a Spanish crowd. Now, you all know he couldn't speak Spanish, right? But But you know what? He got tremendous brownie points and kudos and credit from the community for trying so hard we so knew he, he was doing he it. sometimes butchered the English language. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, he was we never could yeah. get
2: him to say nuclear right. He was an equal opportunity I offended. tried. <laughs>
0: yeah, so Kerry's been dying to jump in here. If I
2: could get back, though, to the crux of uh, this gentleman's question, which was around uh, excluding people from the party. We can't be in the business of excluding people from the party. But what we can do is to keep any extreme element of the party from excluding others. And that's what we're working on here tonight. And, and what I'm trying to get out there as a, a concept, that we need to never have another discussion around litmus tests in our party. We need to abandon litmus tests. Because if we are going to welcome people in, how can we say, how, we can't have that person? He used to be a Democrat well guess what that's how we're going to win is if we convert a bunch of democrats so in the future we can never say you know ask for some sort of ideological purity or some history of membership in the republican party we have to say we welcome you if you consider yourself a conservative you're a conservative and that's good enough and hopefully that will Increase our numbers enough so that you don't have to worry about the people who you feel uh, don't represent you as conservatives
3: But we do have to acknowledge we have a long way to go in that yeah. because because you know I am a conservative pro-life Republican who happens to care about some things like the environment which is a little you know as Carrie as said we haven't talked about that enough as a party so like Anna said you know you get labeled I'm an established I, w- I read in the paper suddenly I'm described as an establishment Republican. And I've I'm, been described I'm that a way rhino before. sometimes we're all Repo- yeah. but, here but, right but now. exactly. Yeah. So 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 there's a <laughs> lot of labeling yeah. <laughs> going on in the party. Well they're rhinos, we're Republicans in name only. Um, and we've got to all call that out when it happens and, and because we don't want to have a party that, that basically is saying you're not yeah. welcome, yeah. which is what well, we you know, say no when way we're I'm
5: pulling out, so out is by saying, out. saying nobody's gonna question my right to be a Republican. I think I got you beat because I'm a woman, immigrant, Hispanic, pro-gay rights, pro-immigration reform who thinks there is climate change. And you know what? Nobody's going to kick me out of that tent. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: let's come back up here to the microphone in the front.
5: Hi, um, my name's Amna Hashmi.
6: I'm a freshman here at the college and I'm a member of the JFK Forum Junior Committee. And so I'm asking this question on behalf of our Twitter and Facebook followers and which is Where do you think is the common ground for socially liberal fiscal conservatives and the other members of
2: their party? I I think it's, it's pretty clear. I think you can coalesce around foreign policy issues. I think you can coalesce around states' rights and economic issues, and that's a very solid core that runs right from the libertarian side all the way through the social conservatives all the way to the moderates. And we, if we look at that first and foremost when we're thinking about what is a conservative and then everything else is, is kind of an add-on, um, I think we can really pull things together as a party.
4: And i just add to that, one of the things that has been so much fun for me when I worked in Congress was to travel and to meet entrepreneurs and go to Silicon Valley, come up here. Um, I'm from Seattle, um, huge biotech community. One of the things that I don't understand why we've sort of let go of it, but is a real core sense of, of Republican being is the sort of entrepreneurial, earn your own success nature of this country. It is propelled forward by people who wake up every single day saying, I'm gonna start a new business. I'm going to take a risk And if I fail, I might do it again. Most of the places in the world, that doesn't happen. Um, If you go to lots of places in Europe, and I took a trip, um, uh, a bipartisan trip to to France, the idea that you would do that doesn't even cross their mind. So, I I think one of the things we need to do, and this gets it being uh, the the idea of, of inclusivity, is we stand for things that are at the core of sort of the American ethos, which is growth, opportunity, taking risk, and not being afraid to do that, um, and building in your communities. And I think along the way, we've allowed ourselves, and this is where um, I think the Bobble's idea is, is a little bit right, we've allowed ourselves to chase things, to say, if we don't deal with that, we're sunk. And I'm not saying that that's inaccurate to a certain degree, but in the meantime, what we've stopped doing is saying, hey, we have a lot of good ideas, and we have a a position that allows us to offer a contrast to the other party and to the leaders of that party and say you have a choice to make. And we've lost sort of our ability to articulate that as we've gotten in these pitch battles on some other things. And I think getting back to that is gonna be critical. We've got a lot of people wanting to ask some questions, so I'm gonna ask the panelists to,
0: well, to help with that. (laughs) <laughs> up, here in the, uh, up here in the box. Uh,
6: my name is Advik Srikumar. I'm a freshman at the college and a registered Democratic voter. And my question re- uh, returns to something that Mr. Christie had said, which was that many Republican Congress people were looking for talking points. And after a general election where both President Obama and Governor Romney received less than 50 uh, percent uh, true or mostly true rating from PolitiFact, I was wondering what the panel thought the future of the Republican Party and the future of politics would be in terms of truthful uh, politicians, uh, politicians who run based on, you know, very much factual statements, trying to get a high truth rating.
5: Yeah.
1: Well, I'll start, I'll tell you, I think one of the reasons why the American people distrust Washington and distrust politicians so much is that they don't believe anything that's coming out of their mouths, right? I mean, they don't. Uh, Congress has somewhere between a 9 and an 11% approval rating. Why? Because Republicans will tell you, oh, you know, we've got everything figured out, if we just cut taxes, you know, the, the economy's going to boom and surge again, and then Democrats will come back and say, oh, if the Republicans cut taxes, then they're going to take away Grandma's Social Security check, and they're going to throw Granny also out of her Medicare and Medicaid. And I think that, As people who are engaged in the public arena, you need to be very truthful about what our policies mean and what their specific impact would be. And I'll give you just one. I think Republicans are getting their clock cleaned and one of the things that we should talk about more is energy policy. If you look at energy policy, if you look around this country where the states that have the lowest unemployment rates, if you look at the Dakotas, if you look at Western Pennsylvania, you look around. Why? Because these people are engaged in fracking. They are extracting energy from out of the ground, they're providing thousands of jobs, they're stimulating their local economies, but Republicans refuse in many ways to engage on this because they're going to be told that they're the party of big oil. So I think that we need to have the courage of our convictions to talk about why our policies are the right way to move the country, what the alternative is, which is kind of the status quo of where we are, and to be very truthful about it. And it, and it has to start at the local level. Anytime that you try to do it from Washington and push it out, it's the wrong approach, but you have to do it from the grassroots going up and also from our national leaders coming down.
0: Next question up here in the other box. Hi. Oh, and by the way, when I said affiliation, what I really meant is like student, faculty, member of the community. I mean, You can tell us what your party affiliation is, but don't feel obligated to do so. <laughs> Thanks.
8: Hi, my name is Victor Navarro. I'm a Cambridge Republican. I'm just a resident here. And my family lives in Texas, in Galveston, Texas. My father works for UTMB and i just wanted to thank Carrie healy for welcoming the ron paul supporters there's a lot of them we are now have a name called the liberty movement we're mostly liberty um, libertarians but i just wanted to make a i just wanted to state that we we are all different types of people we're black we're whim- there's women there are iraqis if you didn't know that that um, there's veterans, there was gay people, there's Latinos in this movement. There's a lot of different people and I hope the Republican Party will welcome us. And we are very outgoing, we're very energetic and I just thank you, I just wanted to thank you again, Kerry Healy, but my question is, are you gonna run for US Senate for Massachusetts? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but I promise we'll have a wonderful, wonderful candidate who will represent the new face of the Republican Party in the Northeast.
8: Thank
0: you. Up here in front, Derek, make sure you tell Derek, make sure you tell everybody what state you're from. I think okay. it's really important everybody yeah. hears that. I'm Derek Baker Breda. Only I'm
1: for Derek, not for from, all you other people asking questions. I'm from Kentucky. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I'm also Republican. So um, I'm a senior here at the college. And my question was, do you believe that the Republican Party can compete for the youth vote? without addressing the environment that many voting youth find themselves in, which are liberal universities where conservative ideas are very much not welcome? And if so, can you think of a way for the Republican Party to actually break into this environment where we've been on the defensive for decades?
0: Ron, this might be a good one for you since you've been, you've taught here and you've taught in other universities.
1: Well, I, I, um, in full disclosure, I I went as an undergraduate to Haverford College um, in Pennsylvania. Um, and loved it, had a great experience and uh, have taught there and have also obviously taught here. And one of the things I think Republicans need to do a better job of is entering academia. A lot of Republicans say, oh, well, those left-wingers, they're indoctrinating the the students and they're all left-wingers. I have had more really productive interactions with students here at the college and at my alma mater who really push you and challenge you to think what you think and they come away and go, gosh, all you Republicans aren't as crazy as I thought. But the flip side of that equation is that I think our colleges and universities by and large that are overwhelmingly liberal do a disservice to the students that they serve. My job is not to indoctrinate you based on my political philosophy or my opinions. My job is to lay out the evidence and train as a lawyer and let you decide, gee, you know, I think this is kind of where I feel more comfortable. But until Republicans get involved in academia and that they are willing to go through and to deal with some of the hostility that is, that is out there, that I've certainly faced, uh, then we're not going to change that perception. And also, our job as Republicans is not to indoctrinate students, it's to educate students and allow them to make the best informed decision. And just
4: building on that a little bit, I, I think one of the things we do need to do, and, and this is members of Congress, senators, you know, everyone in our party, all of us, we can't be afraid to go to places that everyone is not just agreeing with everything we say and make our case and make a statement. I think, you know, we have a whole world that uh, operates in our party that will only watch certain channels and only read certain certain newspapers and now will only look at a hyper-targeted blog that's only talking about the very thing they like in the language they like. And I think if we don't have the courage of our convictions to go out and convince people that we have ideas and that we're willing to both admit that the other side does have ideas and that we're thinking about them, but then offer counter arguments, then, then you know, shame on us, and, and, and no wonder no one understands what we stand for or why they should support what we're doing. And I
5: think an aspect that, that we haven't touched on that is very important to reach all voters, but particularly young voters, is the technology aspect. Yeah. We seem to have a lot of nerds in the Republican Party, but not enough geeks. <laughs> And I think we learned that, that in the last election, <laughs> when uh, when I was here the last exactly. time, and we had that uh, that that you know that, that the campaign uh,
0: decision makers conference at yeah. the decision makers yeah.
5: conference, and we went through what the, diff- the two different campaigns had done. Turns out Republicans are somewhere in the last millennium when it comes to technology outreach, and now you know. I see the young kids in my family; they don't even have voices anymore. They just talk through, through my iPads and iPhones and things. So we need to get better at that. At the tech, invest, really do it now as part of our party building in between elections, because it is a way where we're going to reach youth voters and every voter. Okay, I have a question for you: Are you a member of the Harvard Republican Club?
1: I was president for the past year.
2: Excellent. Okay, so. <laughs> Tell me, then, how many members do you have?
1: Um, Close to 100.
2: Close to 100. Well, in 1978, when I was membership of the Harvard Republican, uh, membership secretary, because I was a girl, of the the Harvard Republican (laughs) Club, um, they they had 12 members. So you're doing quite well. (laughs) (laughs) And I met with a lot of them last night. They were a great group, so
3: very impressive group.
0: Thanks, Dart. Next question.
2: Hi. uh, My name is John. I'm a junior at the college from Turkey. Uh, As for party affiliation, I just like getting popcorn and watch the two parties fight because I can't (laughs) vote. Uh, No. (laughs) You come to the Um, IT for the
0: food is what you're saying, right? No, that's okay. um, I do too.
2: (laughs) I wanted to switch gears and ask about foreign policy because I believe social and economic policy has been uh, talked about a lot. Um, I was wondering what you thought about the future of the foreign policy of the Republican Party, given that the Bush era really transformed it, and um, I mean that's kind of evident from the way Chuck Hagel's nomination was was received. So, where do you think the uh, the mainstream foreign policy of the Republican Party going uh, in the future years? Well, I can say one thing that I I miss uh, in in foreign policy discussions with Republicans now, and I was the foreign policy coordinator for the for the Romney campaign, is that there is now it seems a reticence to talk about human rights issues um, that was not present present during the Bush years. Um, President Bush was very willing to talk about the importance of democracy, the importance of human rights internationally, and I think that our party is poorer because we are not uh, willing to step up and and at least vocalize support uh, for those who take great risks to pursue democracy and freedom, uh, those and, and in support of those who are suffering because their human rights are being violated. And I think that that's a role that we as a party uh, miss and we need to get back to that and I think that that's part of our core message.
3: I agree with that. I mean, I think our party stands for, our country stands for what President Bush called the non-negotiable demands of human dignity. And, and we need to be a loud and proud and strong voice across the world for human rights and human freedom. And. One of my criticisms of the current administration is that I think President Obama's administration has not done that, which is somewhat ironic because you you tend to associate Democratic administrations more with with advocating for human rights, and yet it was President Bush who met with dissidents, who spoke out for greater rights for women, Laura Bush who did the radio address about the plight of women in Afghanistan. Um, The world, I believe, needs to know that the United States of America will always be on the side of human rights and human freedom. And President Bush made that very clear. And, I, I, and one of my criticisms of the current administration is I don't think they've, they've done so. And,
2: and I hope our party will continue that tradition and revive that tradition vigorously in the next election cycle. And Thank I
3: also you. think it's important that we confront tendencies toward isolationism, which, which yes. back, there, there are strains of that in both parties, um, in the right on the right of the, of the Republican Party and on the left of the Democratic Party. And, and we, we really need, uh, you know, in my role at the State Department, I saw firsthand, um, the importance of our engagement with um, audiences across the world, and the difference that we make when we work for what, what I call the deeds of our diplomacy across the world um, and you know we are as a country enormously important to the expansion of opportunity across the world we, we invest in education in health in economic opportunity for people in some of the poorest places in the world and i think it 's vitally important that that we don 't ever that we resist the tendency to just um, and, and frankly, President Obama's promoting this a little too when he talks about nation building at home, which is a powerful line, but I, I hope that he doesn't mean to signal that he wants to retreat from us championing greater human dignity, human rights, human freedom across the world.
0: We're probably going to have time for two more questions. I apologize to the folks who are standing up, but I mention that just because that means you don't have to keep standing up and then be disappointed. Uh, this, this gentleman here and this woman here, we'll start over here with the bottom. Uh, Hello, my name is Pete Rodrigue, I'm in the college. I'm from Dallas, Texas, Um, and the fellow earlier mentioned truth and lies in politics, Um, and when people say things like that, I immediately think campaign finance. Um, So why do politicians tell lies? I think because they're beholden to uh, expensive corporate lobbies, Um, so my question is, as a party that is generally perceived to be kind of cozy with corporations and money, generally speaking. Not that that's always a bad thing. Uh, what do you guys think? Comment, please. I'm,
4: I'm happy to talk about yeah. that since that's in my guy. First, I would say um, uh, the premise of, this, uh, of the question suggests that the Democratic Party is not aligned with large groups that fund lots of things, which is not oh. quite accurate. No, I agree. Um, but I I, I would say this at the expense of my own business model I I am (laughs) troubled by the length of campaigns and the expense of campaigns Um, now there are lots of actors that drive that Um, there are uh, TV and news stations that make lots and lots of money in election years running ads there are grassroots organizations that are funded by saying, we are going to support the hard left or hard right candidate. Um, So the the question I have is, how do you define, given that we all believe in this country uh, in the freedom of speech and expression, a mechanism through which you could have a more condensed campaign process that perhaps shrunk the amount of money required and therefore changed the dynamics of fundraising and and otherwise. I will tell you, having worked for a House member, a leadership House member, the amount of time and energy you have to expend on raising money, both for yourself and for the party, is unbelievable. And then you you go all the way up through the system, whether you're a senator, and then if you're the uh, holding president, I mean, the amount of time you have to spend and you see the president now, traveling constantly to raise money for the party. So I I think it's less of a question of who's cozy with who and more of a question of how are we looking at our overall political process. And um, my wife is Australian. You know, that's like a two-week campaign, and it's very set, and you can't run ads. So I I think the question is, is all of the players that are in the pool are going to have to give things up in order to change the need for the economics of campaigning. And when the economics of campaigning change, I think some of the concerns, and and if I were in the public, I would look and say, wow, billions? We spent billions on the last campaign cycle? That's an incredible amount of money. And where did it go? And what did it do? And so I I, I would have concerns there too. So I I think we collectively uh, in the political class need need to think about that, but I, I sort of don't agree with the idea of well, one, one team is more or less sort of affiliated with that activity. Well, Everybody's been the same, you know.
5: Um, lies, as you call them, I'll say, fudging the facts or stretching the truth. I think it's voters who have the power to stop that. And the more sophisticated and educated the voters, you know, through back through all of these things, the more that uh, politicians will be held accountable. We saw two specific examples, at least, in this campaign. We saw the ad from the Obama camp where they were blaming Governor Romney for a uh, woman's death, basically, cl- killing a woman from cancer. And the backlash was such that they basically never put it on the air. And then on the other hand, we saw the GBad ad uh, that also had a backlash because it fudged and, it, you know, it was somewhat confusing. And that had an effect on voters in Ohio, we found out. So I think it's the voters that have the power. We, you know, we can't expect for politicians to police themselves. That's the voters' job. That's all of ours' jobs.
2: I would also argue that the focus on polling is probably more detrimental to truth in politics uh, than is money. Uh, I think the politicians constantly worry uh, that if they take a particular stance, uh, that they're going to lose votes and if voters were more uh, likely to reward a a candidate for authenticity, for saying, I agree with you in these four things, but I really don't agree with you in this fifth, um, then maybe they'd hear the truth more often and and not have that that politician doing handstands trying to agree on the fifth thing.
0: We've got time for a final question.
2: Therese Roerbeck, I'm a graduate of Harvard Law School,
3: class of 2008, I'm from Massachusetts. My question is, um, what is the future of the Massachusetts Republican Party, and how do we get there? Especially in light of the youth who've graduated and struggled in the recession. It seems at this moment that there's nobody at the state level or even at the national level who represents us or our voice.
2: I presume that's addressed to me (laughs) Uh, as a former chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party and current uh, National Committee woman. um, I I believe that we have just elected a very young, uh, vivacious, intelligent, and uh, somehow still experienced uh, young woman to lead uh, the Massachusetts uh, Republican Party, uh, Kirsten Hughes. We just uh, elected her last Thursday. I think it's too soon to uh, suggest that she has already failed. I think that uh, she will have new ideas and that we have uh, a lot of new blood in the party. Uh, As I have said several times this evening, I'm hoping that we do welcome in uh, the Ron Paul folks uh, into our party here in Massachusetts. There's a lot of them, they're young, they've got great ideas. Uh, and a lot of energy and so i I think we i think we should just pause because every single year or so we announce the death of the republican party in massachusetts and then somehow we get a mitt romney elected or somehow we get a, a scott brown elected and then then we're revived and then somehow we're okay again so so we're just in hiatus right now and and we just need to be patient and wait for that new blood to come in and and it will come
0: Well, that's going to have to be our final comment for the evening. I want to thank the audience. We had a great crowd tonight for our first form of the semester. So thanks to all of you for coming out. Um, First, yeah, go ahead and give yourself some applause. (laughs) That's good. Thank you all. Web meeting on Friday at 3 o'clock. Do we know where yet? Kirk, no. Somewhere, we'll let you know where. At 3 o'clock on Friday, we're going to have an open house. You can meet our fellows, learn them about... We moved it back to 3 It might be at Kirkland House. It might be here. It may not be happening because of the weather. But if you're an undergrad, mark your calendar at 3 o'clock. Fellows, you'll be in the right spot at the right time. Thanks. We'll see you throughout the semester at the Forum.
1: What's that? Right, because we drink. Yes,
4: exactly.